Alright, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share, that American ideal. Friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. All right, Brendan, it is Monday, January 29th, um, fresh off of the championship games and football. You catching any games? Were you waiting with uh, with bated breath for, for a T-Swift uh, sighting? Well, there's been the rumors that have been kind of like jokingly going around media, like NFL media in the last year about how like it's all scripted. And that the NFL writes the script at the beginning of the year and then they hand it out to all like the teams and everyone has to play along with this script. And it's all kind of like haha tongue in cheek. But then you see something like this and so you're like, oh, we're gonna have the star, the biggest star in the world, Times person of the year. She's going to start a relationship with like at this point the marquee franchise and one of the biggest media personalities in the league and then that team is going to overcome quote-unquote adversity and now advance to the the Super Bowl the biggest sporting spectacle in in the United States oh now we're gonna have two weeks of stories about this I as I texted you last night it was it's a well-written script Ricky. <laughs> oh man that you know it's like the whole thing about the whole sort of joy that I think everyone gets from sports is that you don't know the outcomes. And so when you feel like, uh, when you feel like you can tell, tell the ending before, before it even happens, it it does, uh, it does great at you a little bit, but those were, uh, you know, two, two pretty good. I mean, I don't know, two pretty, two pretty decent games. You had, um, a lot of, a lot of other action besides, uh, besides kind of like the overarching narrative i thought yeah and speaking of like seemingly predetermined results like you had to know that detroit was just going to get their hearts broken in the worst <laughs> fashion there just what just just waiting for it and then that fumble and you're like ah here it goes here it goes um but we digress what are what are we talking about this week well ricky we feel truly lucky today we're going to welcome on dr yi ming who is a climate scientist uh, who's currently teaching at Boston College. He is an engineer by trade, and I'm sure we'll get into his background when he joins us in a few minutes. But he's someone that's not only a leader in the climate science field, but also in bringing people together from various disciplines to an integrated uh, space in order to try to address like real life issues that are occurring because of climate change. So I think Ricky, you and I have been circling climate change really since we started this podcast a couple of years ago. And at the end of 2023, when we were going over our top stories of the year, one of yours was COP28 and like and really like climate change and how it, it really seemed to come to the forefront last year in ways that perhaps it hadn't in previous years. And at that point, you and I were essentially like, all right, we got we got to get someone on an expert on to really discuss what's happening in the the climate change area area. T- talk to us about the science, the re- the research that's currently happening. What are the policy implications for that? And I really feel like there are few people better to talk about that or like who are positioned to talk about that than Dr. Ming. And again, we 
feel incredibly lucky that he's going, he's agreed to come on and, and join us here. So again, thrilled that he's, he's given us uh, some of his time and is going to lend us his expertise. I know you are particularly excited, not just because climate change is an issue that you care about, but because of, of your own background to studying uh, this area. Yeah, um, definitely this this one topic is is near and dear to my heart and particularly how Dr. Ming is approaching it uh, these days in which, you know, he's teaching a couple courses, um, I think one of which is called Climate and Society, which is the, the same name as the uh, the master's that I got. Somehow it's been 10, 10 years ago now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, the, this intersection of of climate change and how it impacts society and what society should then do about it, I think is, you know, really something that captured my imagination when I came out of undergrad and I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, this was something that, that felt like I, you know, felt like it was an area that, that I could have an impact and that, that needed something. And, and, though my career has kind of gone in different directions, I'm really excited today to bring it back to, uh, you know, in large parts where it's kind of where it all started. Yeah. Again, we, we are really excited. And so not to wait any longer before we bring Dr. Ming on, just a quick reminder that the podcast is brought to you by the hardworking craftsmen over at Cannon Hill Woodworking. You know, they've been building handcrafted high-end custom tables and desks in Boston since 2018. That's Cannon with two ends. You can check them out on Instagram or visit them online at www.cannonhillwood.com. Uh, check those guys out, give them a shout, and uh, let them know we sent you. All right, shall we? Let's do it. All right, we are now thrilled to welcome Dr. Yi Ming onto the program. Uh, Dr. Ming is a climate scientist who is interested in the inner workings of Earth's climate system and the downstream impacts of climate change on humans and the environment. He earned his Bachelor of Engineering at Tsinghua University and his PhD at Princeton University. His published work center on explaining the underlying processes of weather and climate phenomena and applying the resulting understanding to practical issues of societal and policy importance. Dr. Ming's education and research background is uniquely interdisciplinary. He is an engineer by training and he was drawn to the physical climate science and related policy issues early on in his life. He currently teaches at Boston College as part of the Earth and Environmental Sciences faculty and as part of the Schiller Institute for Integrated Science and Society, which enables him to both pursue cutting edge research at the core of physical climate science and to foster dialogues and collaborations amongst a diverse group of people, including natural scientists, engineers, social scientists, and policy researchers. We have been uh, wanting to talk about climate issues for a long time, and we truly don't feel like there's anybody better to have on than Dr. Ming. So Dr. Ming, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me here. It's a pleasure. Awesome. So I, I think uh, Brennan did a, a great overview of kind of your published bio. I think uh, for our for our audience and for us as well, we're really interested in in kind of in your in your background, how you went from engineering into climate, um, and and tell us a little bit about yourself and where you're from. <clears throat> yeah, sure. Um... I came over to this country about 25 years ago, right after college, uh, to pursue my advanced degree. 
the uh, obviously the most logical pathway forward there is to continue your undergrad major. So as Brenda mentioned, I um, I studied chemical engineering back in uh, college. So I continue that pathway forward. But uh, at that point, I realized that uh, chemical industry has been one of the biggest polluters, right? Obviously, as a young person, you want to be on the uh, right side of the history. <laughs> and uh, so then I figured you can use the same physical and chemical principles uh, to solving environmental issues. So uh, in graduate school, I switched to environmental engineering. But uh, well, at the same time, I, I was still doing my uh, PhD thesis with uh, chemical engineering faculty. So you see, uh, that sort of evolution of uh, your intellectual uh, interest and uh, your career uh, career goal has been evolving all along. So right after PhD, uh, so uh, for my PhD, I study aerosol particles, which are a major source of air pollution. Then it turns out that uh, aerosol particles by scattering sunlight can also affect climate a lot. So uh, then I just, uh, if you have been to Princeton, I just move across Route 1 to work at this uh, uh, federal uh, government laboratory by the name of uh, Geophysical Fluid Dynamics Lab, so, um, which has been the birthplace of uh, uh, climate modeling in many ways, uh, sort of a center of gravity for climate research. So I ended up... Um, uh, doing a postdoc there. Then, to make a long story short, I remained there for 19 years. <laughs> um, essentially, also my entire uh, uh, post-graduation career. Uh, then, um, I I, uh, I felt that uh, over the years, I learned quite a bit, especially from my senior colleagues, uh, including Suki uh, Manabe, uh, the um, Nobel laureate in physics uh, a few years ago. And... Um, and uh, my my mentor, uh, Dr. Ram Swamy, and uh, Isaac Hell. So I learned quite a bit. Then I was wondering to myself whether I can use this kind of physical climate science knowledge to better help people, um, especially in uh, underprivileged communities. Um, that this opportunity uh, at BC came along. Uh, this newly formed Schiller Institute, essentially. Uh, you know, the idea is uh, to conduct research in uh, in the environment, energy, and uh, health. Health. So um, I I feel that a climate change can be used as an anchor point for bringing all the those different ends together, all the different disciplines together. I feel that uh, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. So I just jump on the uh, <laughs> the the bandwagon, if you will, and uh, so here we are. Well, we're thrilled to have you here in Boston, and the Schiller Institute just sounds like such a cool like idea. And I, I think you you mentioned it like in practice, this idea that climate change really affects so many parts of our life and our planet, and it's it's part of like it's very much part of our interconnectedness as like a, a species. And so to bring people together and not just kind of be in their own silos of how climate change affects all of these different parts, it must be really cool for you to kind of try to bring those people together, like from diverse educational backgrounds and personal backgrounds to try to put together science and policy in a, in a way that, as you said, helps people. 
Right. Oh, uh, that's exactly on the money, so to speak. Um, so I I am a product of a succession of a pretty hardcore engineering schools. So, but deep down, deep down under, I always have this longing, uh, to sort of, you know, get to know people, uh, people better. Um, to 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 listen to their needs and uh, try to uh, use my knowledge uh, to to help them in however small way I can. Uh, that's one thing. The, the other uh, thing uh, that speaks to more our educational mission at Schiller, that is um, by interacting uh, with uh, young undergrads, you sort of uh, uh, try to equip them with the latest climate science so that when they go out there to face the real world, uh, they can, um, because for good or bad, uh, climate change is going to be a uh, reality for their entire career and their life. So I just want them to be aware of what's going on, to have the necessary tools uh, to um, sort of uh, uh, shape up their career in a way that can be uh, beneficial for uh, for them personally, at the same time, they can position their career in a uh, uh, reference frame of uh, uh, the common good so that they can uh, sort of uh, uh, have a fulfilling career both personally and uh, for the uh, society at, at large. I, I think it's just sort of one of those rare win-win situations in your yeah. life. So, uh, both for research and for education, I think uh, Schiller Institute is really, I, I think, one of the ideal places uh, for um, both missions. Yeah, Ricky and I both have graduate degrees from Boston College, and this seems very aligned with like BC's mission is to like, kind of do well and do good. And I think what's really cool about you teaching undergrads is that you you probably acknowledge that some of them might go on to be scientists and engineers, but the vast majority of them are going to go into business or law or policy or education or all of these other areas. But I think what you're saying is climate change is going to affect all these areas. So if we can give like these kids, these emerging young adults, a foundation in climate science and like the actual, like the science and the research of it, they can go on in their individual fields and make a difference in kind of in this climate change space. Right. Um, for for example, this big undergrad course I'm teaching. Uh, actually, I'm about to give another lecture in uh, two hours. <laughs> it's called a uh, climate change and the society. So most of the undergrads sitting uh, in that class, uh, I have 180 or so. Um, they're mostly, I guess, uh, uh, finance and uh, econ majors. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in that course i i talk about hurricanes i talk about uh floods droughts etc etc but um and also wildfires but i'm trying to frame everything from this sort of bottom line kind of view um insurance premier for example right so if you manage a a big portfolio how would you factor in climate risks in a more systematic manner that kind of thing so I, I think they'll get their attention right away. Then you'll say, oh, to understand those financial risks, you need to understand the physical system. I, I think it just gives them this extra push uh, in better understanding the physics. Uh, everything underlines uh, climate change instead of just uh, jumping into the uh, 
um, jump into the uh, the the foray and uh, you know without a solid uh, physics foundation. Right. Obviously, I'm not going to push them to understand all the uh, equations. <laughs> uh, that's not the purpose. But uh, I I think with that physical uh, grounding, um, they they're just going to do that much better than their peers. Yeah, no, that, that's, it's really, a, it sounds like an awesome program and such an opportunity for the people that get to, to learn from you and such a great advertisement for Boston College, actually. Uh, so you mentioned some of the the weather-related events, uh, weather, and I, I wanted to get into that. So in 2023, I'll, I'll start with just here in the United States, there were 28 confirmed weather climate disaster events with losses exceeding $1 billion. These events included one drought event, four flooding events, 19 severe storm events, two tropical cyclone events, a wildfire event, and a winter storm event. Overall, these events resulted in the deaths of 492 people and obviously had significant economic effects and psychological effects on the people living in these areas and who were impacted by these events. Um, the average from 1980 to 2023 was eight of these events per year. And the average for the last five years is now up to 20 events per year. And then, so that was just for the United States, but also looking at globally, we had the hurricane in Libya, flooding in Rwanda and the Congo, cyclones in Myanmar and Malawi, earthquakes in Afghanistan, Morocco, Turkey, and Syria, that between all of them killed tens of thousands of people and you know, untold economic losses. So Dr. Ming, how much of this is related to climate change versus that these are just kind of natural disasters that have happened throughout history. We all grew up, natural disasters happen. It seems like these were once in a hundred years, once in a century, and then it was once a decade. And now it seems we have multiple of these every year. So how much can you tie these terrible big events, weather events to climate change? Uh, yeah, so first of all, I have to be a little bit nice there because, um, uh, you you mentioned earthquakes. Uh, I can say with a straight face that earthquakes are not related to climate change. Um, Good to know. That's, See, that's what I want to know. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, sorry for uh, putting on that more uh, skeptical side of uh, being a scientist. Uh, but uh, uh, all the other weather uh, phenomena like um, floods, hurricanes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, I uh, I mentioned them. Uh, when we were talking about this uh, undergrad course already, right? Um, I'll just give you this perspective. Uh, it may be striking to hear first, that is climate is in a sense a misnomer. So what do you mean by climate? Climate by definition is average weather, right? So, but at the same time, as a senior colleague, of my used to say all averages are misleading away, right? You can have 0 0.5, 0 0.5 add up to 0.5 in average, or you can have 0, 0.1 add up to 0.5 as well. So truly, uh, in a sense, uh, what we uh, worry about um, as climate scientists is, uh, or we do active research on, is how extreme weather events may uh, behave in a uh, warmer climate. So, um, so there is a fundamental issue here um, about uh, signal and uh, noise. 
signal, I mean, things being forced by greenhouse gases, by climate change, by um, uh, what we do um, to the climate system. At the same time, the climate system is very noisy. It, as as you alluded to, Brandon, those uh, extreme weather events have been with us uh, probably since start of time, right? I I, I trust the uh, dinosaurs saw hurricanes yeah. <laughs> to some extent as well, right. but uh, uh, the the fundamental question here is uh, whether. Um, climate change would uh, alter the pattern of extreme events. I I think uh, research has not given us a complete answer yet. For some of the weather events like heat waves, uh, it's relatively straightforward. Um, uh, uh, a warming temperature may just elevate the severity and the duration of heat waves. Of course, that also depends on the your definition of the heat wave. But if you go to um, uh, something like hurricanes, um, people are doing a lot of active research on them. Uh, right now, my understanding is that uh, uh, for very severe hurricanes, uh, there may be um, some signal there, but uh, the jury is still mostly out. That, that's my understanding uh, of the literature. And as I think about floods and the droughts, uh, there is a very uh, solid physical argument called uh, wet get wetter, uh, dry get drier, based on a simple uh, physics argument. So we do have uh, good reasons to believe that uh, uh, climate change will also alter the Earth's uh, water cycle a lot, uh, but um, still, how this may manifest on regional scales? Uh, it's, uh, I I think we're still doing active research on it, so I I don't want to, uh, you know, venture too much out there. Um, but another point I want to make is that um, you're talking about the uh, economical laws. Um, that's very much depend on your. For example, uh, building practices. And uh, as society gets richer, everyone wants to get close to a uh, beach and they, they build very expensive properties along the uh, coastal line. Then that's obviously going to increase your exposure to, to a floods associated with um, hurricanes, right? Then in the long run, if you think about rising sea level compounded by uh, stronger storms, uh, that's a perfect recipe for uh, disaster. So I, I think it's very important to recognize there is a uh, this potential risk of uh, natural disasters associated with climate change. At the same time, you've got to think about ways uh, to minimize your exposure, at least manage your exposure to natural uh, disasters uh, given uh, what's in store for us. So I, I think you've got to uh, think about the uh, the entire issue in a more holistic fashion. Yeah, I, I, th I think some of what you're alluding to is this sort of the, not necessarily tension, but the, is the, should the focus be on adaptation or, or mitigation at this point? I, I do want to come back to that. But um, I think one of the things that you said, which was a very big foundation of the 
courses that I took when I uh, took a similarly named course at Columbia called Climate and Society. Um, the this idea of the wetter gets wetter and the drier, or sorry, and the dry gets drier. Um, in the U.S., we obviously, when climate change comes up, it does come up in relation to the natural disasters, which you said that even there, the link is a bit tenuous, but this idea of long-term patterns changing, um, having greater impacts in other parts of the world, I think is something we don't hear that much about. And I know some of your uh, focus areas have been on sort of the changing monsoon patterns in the in southeast in in the southern in South Asia or um, or the drought in the Sahel. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about uh, both what some of those observations are in terms of how changing climate is impacting that part of the world and also what that what those implications are um, in terms of how those uh, people who live there are going to have to either adapt or, or change. Right. Um, thanks, Ricky, uh, for uh, bringing up my uh, past studies on uh, monsoons. Uh, so you, you, you mentioned two regions. Uh, one is South Asia, for example, Indian subcontinent. The other one would be uh, uh, African continent. I published a number of papers uh, with a former student on the uh, Sahel um, uh, droughts. So Sahel is a region just immediately south of the Sahara Desert, north of the uh, rainforest in Central Africa. Um, so in the case of uh, South Asia, so our study there, the focus was on the impact of aerosols on the um, uh, on South Asian monsoon. I, I mentioned that um, I study aerosols uh, as part of my PhD thesis. So aerosols are little tiny particles associated with uh, air pollution. So there are some sort of natural uh, sources as well, like desert dust. But uh, here, uh, our main focus is on uh, man-made aerosols. So as you can picture, uh, most of the uh, aerosol sources are coming from the northern hemisphere because that's where uh, people are for most part, right? So most of the continents are in the northern hemisphere. So that's where you have a lot of air pollution and aerosols. So what we study was the, the impacts of this uh, asymmetrical uh, perturbation to the climate system. The asymmetry I'm referring to here um, is between the two hemispheres because you're putting all the air pollution, most of the air pollution over northern hemisphere. So that will reduce the uh, thermal contrast between northern hemisphere and the southern hemisphere. This kind of, especially during the uh, northern hemisphere summer, when the northern hemisphere is supposed to be much warmer than the southern hemisphere. Now you're putting this, uh, um, aerosol layer on top of the northern hemisphere, you're, you're reducing the thermal contrast. Turns out the thermal contrast is the fundamental driving force of the uh, South Asian monsoon. So that will weaken the monsoon, give you a uh, uh, somewhat uh, drier condition. So our study suggested, uh, this is based on observation that uh, during the uh, uh, second half of the 20th century, the um, the the uh, monsoon rainfall 
over central northern India got reduced by almost 10%. That's a major perturbation, disruption to the system. So we were able to ascribe that drawing to the increased air pollution level. So that's that part of the study. Then if you think of the uh, the Sahel rainfall, this sort of semi-arid area, uh, south of uh, Sahara Desert. So there were, we were mostly looking at the uh, the response of the monsoon to the change in the, uh, uh, what we call a sea surface temperature. It's just how warm the the oceans are. And uh, we we artificially increase the uh, temperature of the ocean by uh, two degree and see how Sahel rainfall may respond to it. Uh, the motivation was that uh, uh, back in um, 1970s, 80s, uh, there was a very se severe drought over there, it's called the Sahel drought. And uh, that caused the major um, um, uh, damages uh, to life and the property over there. And uh, so some people argue that could be a preview of what's to come because as you uh, know, uh, in the 1970s and the 80s, uh, the Earth's temperature started to take off as well. So uh, people worry whether this will those uh, regions will turn into prolonged droughts in the future with uh, worsening warming. So that's the motivation of our study. And um, here, maybe I can bring in one more element. Um, that is uh, uh, climate models. Climate models are uh, 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 computer models uh, you uh, code out based on uh, all the equations, and uh, you put that on a uh, uh, a big computer, supercomputer, and uh, you solve it. And uh, then you will see um, what emerges out of that uh, computer code is something very similar to the observed climate. So that j just shows you, actually, our climate system follows uh, a bunch of uh, physics laws. And um, then you can play with... Uh, uh, computer models to look at, for example, the response of your climate to different concentrations of CO2. That's essentially how we do climate projection too. It's almost like a crystal ball we look into to get some sort of information on future uh, climate. So uh, um, to a large extent, climate model simulations are the ba ba basis uh, for uh, United Nations climate assessment. And uh, obviously, that forms the the the, the base for uh, policy formulation. So, what we going back to Sahel? What we saw uh, was that uh, different climate models actually gave you quite different projections for that part of the world in terms of the how the precipitation may change in the future. And uh, so, uh, we were puzzled by it. Uh, by it, if that's the case, then how can you know, right? Uh, especially what to do uh, if you're uh, there. So um, what we found was that uh, we were able to attribute the different model responses uh, to uh, certain uh, component of the uh, climate models, uh, what we call uh, cumulus parameterization. 
So anyway, so uh, from that kind of exercise, now we can have a better uh, idea of uh, uh, what the future may bring to uh, the Sahel. Um, so yeah, I know it's a somewhat long survey. No, no, <laughs> just I, cannot resist the urge uh, to uh, dive into science. Yeah, and I, I, I think that's exactly the point to some degree that the the complexity in the in the science and really the complexity in the overall climate system that you can have aerosols in one part of the world driving changes in precipitation patterns in another part of the world makes it so difficult i think for the public to really grasp both what is happening and you know if scientists say that it's getting warmer but then i i experience a two week cold stretch you know all of a sudden my perception of how, what the scientists are telling me is different and that doesn't necessarily conflict with the science in how um in how it tries to explain these the models but i think that's actually a great transition because you know one of the big focuses of policy lately have been on this uh this one and a half degree um limiting of of, of global temperature rising. I wonder if you can talk through both how they arrived at that number and, and, and what that number um, is meant to signify. Right, the um, Paris Agreement goal of 1.5 degree. Uh, by the way, that 1.5 degree um, is relative to what we call pre-industrial level. So that's before the recent rise in uh, CO2 concentration. So if you think about the year 2023, we're about 1.3, 1.4 um, uh, higher than the pre-industrial temperature already, just for the year 2023. Obviously, uh, Ricky, going back to your point, um, the the different state of uh, uh, what we call Enso, El Nino, Southern Oscillation, uh, whether it's uh, uh, abnormally warm over East Pacific or cold. Right now we have a very big El Nino going on. So that's contributing to this um, uh, very warm 2023 as well. But uh, the, the writing is on the wall. The overall trend is uh, going up. Um, so we may be getting to 1.5 goal um, very soon, I have to say, uh, in a very set way. So going back to your question about, um, you know, how you would arrive at a 1.5 or two degree goal, I, I think the um, main thinking there is um, by keeping temperature uh, within this kind of a range, uh, you're, the hope is that you can avoid the worst consequences of climate change. Um, but for example, um, if you study finance, obviously, or just the, your personal finance, uh, you understand this uh, compound rate, right? So you, if you save a certain amount of dollars, so if you have 3% um, return on your money every year, then it may not sound a lot, but if you keep on doing this so for 20 years, so 3% year after year, in no time, your money is going to double. So that it's kind of the same thing, similar thinking, not the same, but similar. 
for example, um, we have a very uh, solid uh, uh, physics uh, constraint that, that is um, if you increase the temperature by one degree, you're going to increase the maximum amount of water you can hold in the volume of air by 7%. So it's almost like a compound rate within a certain range of 7%. So um, if you think about uh, the risk from flooding for the same storm um, in a warmer climate, uh, say two degree warmer, you're going to have uh, 14, 15% of uh, more uh, water vapor to dump on you. So that's going to tremendously increase the risk of flooding. So it's kind of a similar thinking uh, there. Um, another factor is that uh, we have to realize the climate system is not linear. That linear meaning um, if you increase this by uh, climate, uh, uh, the, the warming by one degree, you're going to get X, Y, Z. That if you increase this by two degree, you're going to get two x, two y, two z. Just doubling it. It doesn't behave like that. Uh, actually, that's really something that got me worried. That is, uh, our climate system is somewhat nonlinear. There are certain sort of pressure points built into the the climate system. Um, a very well known one. If you watch the movie "The Day After Tomorrow," the 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 AMOC or, or Atlantic uh, uh, overturning circulation. Um, so that's bringing hot water uh, to uh, high latitudes uh, from uh, the tropics. Uh, if that got shut down or got weakened a lot, and uh, uh, North America and Europe would get a lot colder. So then another example is uh, the uh, permafrost, the frozen uh, carbon stock uh, in Siberia, you know, high latitude. Uh, so they have been there. Uh, if uh, the temperature uh, got too too high, they will start to uh, bubble, release CO2. That's going to be a major kicker um, in terms of the carbon cycle. So, so by keeping temperature in a relatively narrow range, uh, you can minimize the risk of uh, getting to those, uh, what we call uh, the tipping points. So I, I think, uh, obviously, you, you can say what's magical about 1.5, how about 1.6, that kind of thing. I, I think there is also this communication uh, perspective. You, you, you need a wrong number, so something people can conceptualize, the survey really um, has an anchor point for uh, getting people's attention to, to put a well-defined goal there, right? If you're undergrad, I was like, you know, get an A, <laughs> right? That's my goal, uh, right? So so it's it has that kind of sort of a psychological uh, aspect to it as well. So I, I, I hope I gave you a rough sense of uh, how people uh, settle down that particular number. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense, both scientifically and like you say, kind of logically in terms of how, how you are putting forth that message to the general public. I actually, you mentioned the United Nations and I wanna talk about uh, the United Nations here because for all of its flaws, I think one of the United Nations is going to be critical in addressing climate change going forward. So, 
the COP28, the COP28, was the 28th United Nations Climate Change Conference. It took place in Dubai um, at the beginning of December. And Ricky and I talked about it after the after the conference ended. And Ricky was excited in a lot of ways because the, the big kind of emerging thing coming out of COP28 was that oil producers in the Middle East and beyond agreed to consider pairing back the use of fossil fuels. And there was a collective promise to invest in a lot more renewable energy and everyone pledged to write new plans to cut carbon emissions more quickly. And so there was a lot of like really good news coming out of that conference. My kind of my hesitancy in terms of being as excited as Ricky was with that news was kind of exactly pointing to 2015 in Paris. And everyone agrees we're going to try to limit it to 1.5. And as you pointed out, we've already that we've already lost that goal eight years later. So can you talk a little bit about COP28? How did you feel about the progress made? How hopeful are you that that progress is going to be achieved? Uh, yes. Um, so COP20 actually is quite personal to me because I was there as part of the BC delegation. That's a nice thing about Schiller Institute. Here we uh, organized BC uh, response COP28. So we went through a uh, very uh, rigorous process of uh, uh, picking our uh, uh, members of the delegates. So it's a, uh, a mix of undergrads, uh, graduate students, and uh, faculty members. So, so I was lucky enough uh, to be one of the faculty members. So uh, going back to your question, Brendan, um, right, um, climate change does not know national boundaries. If you put CO2 into the atmosphere, just because of very long lifetime of CO2, we just get uh, homogenized with uh, emissions from other parts of the world. And um, um, so in that sense, there's no obvious way to uh, take ownership of your uh, emissions. So you have to uh, negotiate a uh, international framework so that everyone can be on the same page. You cannot just be a free rider. So that has to be done through some international agreement or organization. So in this sense, um, UN plays a critical role. Well, on the other hand, it's not a national government. You cannot uh, force people to do things by passing law or uh, you know <laughs> imposing taxes. Uh, so, so COP twenty eight or the COP process, uh, people oftentimes say this uh, in private. That is essentially. Um, public shaming game. So it's 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 like right you you made a promise that in a year people are going to check on it and to see whether your follow is through. And uh, I think going back to COP twenty eight for the major oil producers to uh, sign up on the final agreement or the uh, declaration saying we're going to be transitioning away from fossil fuel. That is still a major historical uh, uh, step forward. And um, so it's now in writing. So people are going to check on you year after year. So, right, the pressure is on, no, no doubt about it. But uh, it's just how to uh, enforce um, this kind of uh, 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 commitment and uh, how to uh, take stock for example, of your uh, uh, greenhouse gas emission uh, year after year. So uh, scientists are still working on it. And uh, 
Um, so I, I think it's going to be a long process, uh, but uh, all the indications are we're moving in the right direction. Um, I, I would just leave it like that. And uh, while well, mentioning two other observations of um, COP, uh, COP28, the first one is the presence or the 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 voice uh, from the younger generation, especially the the youth uh, uh, delegates. So there, are, um, we're we're not negotiators. Uh, I I mean the for example the BC delegation, we're not a part of the national government. So we're there to observe the negotiation. So as a result, we got the chance to uh, intermingle with youth delegates a lot. So those are high school kids, college kids from different countries, um, you know, uh, went through a very competitive process. They're so um, enthusiastic about the, uh, uh, the climate-related issue, they feel that's their future at stake. So they're fully engaged in the process. So talking to them really gave you a sense of hope. <laughs> you know, the, the uh, they're doing everything they can uh, to increase their climate literacy, while at the same time they're not uh, uh, going to, uh, you know, be shy away from their opinions. Uh, they let you know, especially let the politician know that uh, you're playing with their future and you've got to do better than what they're doing, right? So that's really uh, um, putting people in power uh, you know, on the spot, you got to do something. So, I I think uh, the increasing involvement, increasing awareness among young people, uh, I think that's going to be the fundamental driving force uh, as we uh, move forward, both in terms of the COP uh, process and uh, um, you know in the greater society. And uh, the other point I want to make is that uh, the involvement of the uh, private industry. And um, you, you mentioned renewable energy investment, everything. Um, it's just, uh, you know, with changes um, come also a lot of uh, opportunities. Yeah. I, I feel that uh, people are, you know, companies, um, uh, utility industry, they're positioning, positioning themselves uh, for the next wave. I, I feel that there are so many activities there as well. So I, I think it's going to be a uh, uh, sort of multi-pronged approach. It's not just going to be national government as important as uh, that is. We also have the uh, active participation of the younger generation and the private industry. I think if we keep on pushing along all uh, the different lines, uh, we may have a better chance of uh, getting everything under control. I think that's a, that's a very hopeful message, you know, keeping in mind that some of our goals of limiting the warming may have already passed us by, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the game is over. I, th I think that that's at least sort of some bit of hope that we can take from this. I, th I think one of the other interesting things that you sort of preface the discussion about, you know, carbon emissions don't recognize national borders. And in many ways, we've been getting in our own way 
due to specific domestic policy considerations or really, you know, different countries trying to preserve their own economic interests or at least short run economic interests. Um, from a scientist perspective, um, so maybe trying to put, which is almost impossible to do, some put, put some of the political considerations aside, you know, what are some of the things that you think are, you know, you know, kind of either low hanging fruit or, or areas that should be focused on either that are getting some attention or, you know, maybe not getting enough attention um, in this sort of broader push to, to decarbonize? I think um, we talk about carbon emissions do not know national boundaries, right? It does not respect uh, I what's the best way to fr uh, frame it? Uh, we're talking about spatial boundary, right? It doesn't know the temporal boundary either. So by that, I mean, if you think about the uh, the lifetime of uh, CO2, that could be hundreds of years. Then you think about essentially your uh, 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 history lesson, right? Starting from the uh, industrial revolution, um, you start to uh, burn a lot of fossil fuel, but uh, that burning was mostly done by uh, Western countries, um, right? So um, then gradually uh, developing countries in more recent decades are trying to uh, catch up uh, because they, they need to uh, increase uh, their uh, quality of living as well. So then uh, the Western countries are more sort of leveling off or even dropping to some extent by switching to uh, greener, uh, I would say cleaner energy, for example, the, uh, the switch to uh, natural uh, gas in this country. And uh, then if you think about the future, uh, we, we talk about Africa. One way people are saying um, this uh, was that uh, Africa in 21st century is going to be Asia in 20th century because Africa is going through this um, uh, fundamental transition towards more advanced economy. So that uh, uh, needs a lot of uh, energy. So, um, so what I'm trying to say is that uh, if you were just a take a look at what happened in the past. There is this fundamental uh, uh, climate justice issue involved as well, right? So, um, uh, so the, um, we, we were talking about COP. At COP27, um, uh, there was an agreement to uh, set up a loss and the damage fund so that uh, the uh, developed country can pay into it to support the mitigation and adaptation effort in developing countries. So I think that's also a major step forward. Um, so going back to your question about low hanging fruits, I think that's where we can be more innovative. Um, if you think about it, um, uh, take the example of India. Last year, we have been working on a uh, uh, proposal to look at the impacts of uh, climate change on the mental health of a rural population in low and middle income countries. Um, it's such a <laughs> vast topic, right? You may wonder, how can you get started? 
Actually, the idea was uh, to look at uh, uh, Indian farmers. Um, uh, we we talk about uh, the monsoon, how important uh, the rainfall is uh, for local economy, especially agriculture. So what we, we saw was that um, with uh, a more erratic monsoon pattern, that's going to increase the mental stress of uh, farmers quite a bit, especially in developing countries. So then you think about the low-hanging fruits. They're uh, to improve the, uh, uh, for example, the irrigation system there by installing a um, this sort of portable uh, solar panel. Uh, people can pump water for irrigation more efficiently, everything that will increase the uh, the the crop yield a lot. And uh, that's going to be so um, important for lifting millions of people, especially uh, women and the children, out of poverty. And uh, at the same time, uh, help them to become more climate re uh, resilient uh, to uh, erratic uh, weather patterns. I, I think you don't need a lot of investment. At the same time, you're, you're, you're changing someone's uh, uh, life almost completely, just given how little uh, people have there. I, I think to me, it's not a, right? In this country, it's like almost like <laughs> whether you should switch to EV or not, right? That's the, uh, the, the question you're debating, whether you want to help uh, with climate. But uh, in developing countries, uh, people, are, they don't have a lot. And uh, well, at the same time, they're bare the, the, the brunt of the, uh, uh, the, the negative consequences of uh, climate change. And uh, by uh, going out there, especially uh, by reaching out to the global south, um, I, I, I feel that uh, the same investment can do a lot more good there. So uh, it's, as you can see, I'm not just thinking about mitigation, how to cut, em uh, cut emissions, because uh, if you're a climate scientist, you know a lot of warming is already in the pipeline. For a long time, this warming, even if we stop uh, emit, emitting CO2 right now, uh, the, the warming is going to continue for some time to come. So um, to, to, to help uh, developing countries, uh, global south, to better be prepared for what's in store, yeah, I, I feel that's where the, uh, some of the low-hanging fruits are. Yeah, I think that's really helpful to to keep in mind. And I mean, it, it is it is one of those things that now fossil fuels are, you know, the the enemy in so many ways. But in in the mid 1800s with industrialization, there was, you know, a huge economic benefit, obviously, mostly realized in Western Europe and the United States. But the ability to support really the modern day economy was is built on fossil fuels and and so there is this idea as you were mentioning that both what's happening in in Asia and China and in India that really their per capita emissions we need to still see those rise and then obviously with Africa it has to rise probably tenfold before this you know a basic standard of living can be achieved i wonder you know the tension has always been in the united states how can we see our resources go elsewhere 
obviously there's this sort of historical climate debt that we kind of owe to the rest of the world, but that doesn't necessarily move minds domestically. How, how do you think about sort of the pitch to, to countries that have already kind of achieved the standard of living that they, that it's in sort of the overall interest to, to uh, maybe allow certain countries to emit more um, to raise their standard of living. But um, yeah, I guess, how do you think about that? And obviously now we're delving out of the world of, of science a bit, but uh, certainly you've, you've contemplated these questions probably more, way more deeply than we have. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, we're all learning, I, I think, um, almost by the day. I, I mentioned the loss and the damage fund uh, being formalized as we speak. Um, I, I think a lot of uh, Western countries are paying into it. Um, if you follow COP28, almost on day one, there was just a big announcement of uh, uh, big donors, uh, donor countries uh, contributing to the, the fund. That's such a major step forward. I think people are, people are now talking about formal mechanisms, for example, through the World Bank, how to... Uh, uh, dispense the uh, the fund to make the most out of it. I, I think that's a major uh, mechanism. I think another way, especially climate scientists can uh, help with is uh, by uh, better dissemination of uh, climate information. Um, you know, I, I just give you a quick example. For example, the, uh, the, the climate model. So we, we mentioned about this sort of a, tool you use uh, for projecting future uh, climate extreme events, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that requires a lot of funding, um, a lot of uh, computing power. That's not um, something every country can afford. If we can pull the, the resources together, uh, better uh, you know, uh, informing developing countries on the uh, latest uh, climate information, actionable climate information for their uh, mitigation and uh, adaptation efforts. I think that will be another very effective way uh, to um, sort of level the, 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 the playground. And uh, now obviously you have this uh, very thorny issue, um, you know, how, uh, we have this uh, maximum amount of uh, 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 allowed emissions uh, for uh, uh, certain climate goal. How would you sort of uh, uh, distribute that quota among different countries? I, I think it's such a uh, uh, loaded question. So I, I, I don't really have a good answer for that, but uh, I, I think one way to think about this is that uh, don't think of this as merely a zero-sum game. I feel that uh, with uh, rapid uh, advancement in technology um, and uh, also with um, uh, better uh, understanding of the, uh, the, the policy related to the, uh, um, I, I think, um, and also, we, we uh, you know, I, 
one way to think about this uh, to me is that that's always um i i i i tend to be more optimistic about things uh, even when it's very dark i i just gave you this example about uh air pollution and uh i i think there are so many uh areas in our uh, policy arena they are what we call um co-benefits for example if you cut down uh, fossil fuel consumption by switching from, say, a coal-fired power plant to a gas-fired uh, power plant, you're going to cut down the air pollution uh, a lot. At the end of the day, fossil fuels are not uh, just a polluter for the climate. They're also just a conventional polluter in terms of uh, producing air pollution, particles, uh, ozone, etc. So, um, if you identify those areas of um, uh, co benefit, I think the resistance uh, uh, to any uh, movement in those departments is going to be lessened a lot. So I, I think we just have to be more creative uh, in thinking about uh, ways uh, to deal with uh, climate uh, change in a more holistic fashion, sort of think outside of the box kind of view. And uh, I, I feel that's uh, that's an idea that has not uh, caught up with the, uh, the the community at large. I, I think we need to uh, uh, put more emphasis on those uh, sort of areas of uh, uh, common pathway forward instead of uh, focusing on just the differences. Because at the end of the day, we only have one planet uh, and we only have one home and uh, it's in everyone's best interest uh, to uh, do the best, uh, especially for the younger generation. I, as, as I mentioned, as hard as it may be, I, I'm trying to be optimistic about everything. I just feel that um, you, know, you, you, you need hope to carry on. Uh, you need hope to do better. That was really well said. And I think that's a perfect place to leave it. Dr. Ming, we, we love optimism on this program paired with like reality. And I think you did a really nice job of painting a, a realistic picture for us, but also giving us a lot of reasons to be hopeful. And I do, I, I personally, I don't speak for it, but feel very energized coming out of this of like, all right, it's not as, as dour a future as perhaps some people, a bleak future pe people want to pay, paint it as. But uh, Dr. Ming, I feel like we could we could talk to you for hours about this stuff. There's so many, there's so many questions. And this is what you do for others. So you do talk to hours, but you've been incredibly generous with your time and your expertise. We greatly appreciate you coming on. I am truly jealous of all the students that get to learn from you and, and listen to you. And um, we'll certainly be keeping an eye on the work that you do personally and the Schiller Institute at BC does. Uh, uh, but again, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Yes, thank you so much, Brandon and Ricky, for having me. Uh, you guys are doing a um, tremendous job in uh, public outreach, everything. So I really appreciate it. Yeah, <laughs> we hope thank so. You. So I don't know. We appreciate <laughs> you. Yeah. Thank you. Truly, I feel like we could have spent at least another hour, if not several more hours, with Dr. Ming and he was not only very generous with his time today, but 
said that he would be commendable to coming on in the future, which is always like a be careful what you wish for because we'll have you back next week. If you want. <laughs> but he's got plenty of things that he's actually working on. But Ricky, I tremendously enjoy the conversation, but just watching you listen to Dr. Ming and obviously you have a background in this and you do a lot of work in this space and just like the, the nerd aspect. I feel like so many times in these episodes, it's me nerding out, but I feel like this was truly you nerding out in terms of like your, your thought process. So I'm, I'm curious uh, your main takeaways from Dr. Ming. Oh man. I mean, kudos to you for, for finding him and his work and bringing him onto the podcast. I mean, you're, you are our, our talent booker and you do <laughs> a phenomenal job, but this one was, was really one for me. I, uh, I think it's just such a pleasure and a privilege to hear somebody who thinks not only about their specific space, but how that kind of interplays with like everything that's going on. And climate change is really just like that particular subject that is so cross-cutting. I mean, you, you heard from Dr. Ming that he was started out as an engineer and then wanted to sort of do something that he felt was doing more good. But in sort of exploring this different avenue was like, well, my engineering background completely applies. And I think, you know, for me, my background in economics, not at his level, I was an undergrad econ guy, but still, you know, I, I found so many avenues that like, it really applies to this conversation because there is the scientific angle, but there is also kind of this, you know, well, what do we do about it? And that's the economics and political angle. And, uh, you know, what what's going to happen regardless of whether we do anything about it. And that's sort of the social policy and kind of all these different um, things. I'm really is like what got me interested in climate change in the first place. But to hear someone talk about it with both, you know, that understanding of how different kind of laws of thermodynamics like apply to climate change and how we see it play out in reality but then also kind of you know in at this stage in his career trying to connect the dots and help students connect the dots with you know what he was talking about in terms of you know if you're interested in finance and kind of uh kind of risk evaluation climate change matters to you and here's why i yeah i was um i'm really excited by the work that they're doing and it was it was just a pleasure for me to to get to hear all that i hope i hope everyone who listened you know learned something i certainly did um but but also kind of found you know starts to think about how how what i'm doing applies here Yeah. When he's saying that he's an optimist, it didn't feel like false optimism. And I think it goes to a lot of what you were just touching on, this idea of the younger generation coming up and in all of their fields. And I still think we're in some ways part of the younger generation. And like in all our friends, we, we are aware that it touches everything. And I know that globalism is like not hot in the streets right now at the, you know, the nation state level. And, but this this is truly one of those global issues. It's inescapable that we are all, as Dr. Ming said so beautifully at the end of that conversation, that we only have one planet and we like, this is like, we're, we're all part of this species that are, are affected by our climate. And it, it, that's where it feels like there, there is hope. Um, and so often it, it seems like 
<laughs> there we we can't find these areas that we can agree. But uh, th this does seem like an area where younger people coming up do all, all kind of re recognize that this is an issue. And that brings me to like this. One of my other takeaways from the conversation was, Ricky, I feel like when we were growing up, as so often happens, the extremes dominated the conversation. Either we were going to be extinct in like a hundred years because climate change was going to wipe us all out or climate change didn't exist at all. Nope. Don't, I don't believe it. Head in the sand. Nothing's changing. And, and like, I feel like that was the debate that was happening when we were growing up, like in the early two thousands. And while certainly those extremes still exist in the, this space, I feel like the conversation has shifted a lot more to what Dr. Ming is talking about is that the vast majority of people recognize that climate change exists. Now it's really a question of what do we do about it? And I, I, I don't, want to skip over that that's a massive improvement just in the last like decade or so that we've kind of reached this place and again i think that goes back to his point that this isn't some false optimism like there are real reasons despite how concerning all of this all of these issues are to have optimism going forward yeah uh i mean the <laughs> unfortunately we still have those debates inside congress for some reason but in yeah. i think in in general, there is, right, exactly what you said, this broader acceptance that climate change is occurring, that our current behavior is contributing to it. But then the question is, all right, so so now what? Um, and obviously, you know, trying not to, I, I don't think, you know, Dr. Ming was doing a really good job in sort of sticking to the science, but there are a lot of these sort of political questions around it right like if you're a, if you're a person who really believes that we need to cut emissions and we need to cut them fast do you really think that we need to be focusing all of our dollars into like he was saying electric vehicle conversion <laughs> when if we made some investments in china and india we could probably save all of the emissions that we're going to save by transitioning to electric vehicles and then some for the same amount of money or less. Right. But okay. All of a sudden that doesn't benefit anybody in the United States, or at least doesn't provide any immediate benefit. And so there is this, um, this tension that we can continually have to grapple with. But I think what some of what you were saying about the cop, uh, 28 giving you some hope that there is this like, a little bit of momentum, let's say, to 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 tackle some of these things. Sure. And one more source for optimism that I found in thinking about this car preparing for this conversation with Dr. Ming was Ricky, when we were growing up, the big issue in like climate change and climate science for us was the ozone layer. The ozone layer, we had this huge hole in the ozone, and we were concerned about like what it was doing to our climate. And there was the historic Montreal Protocol from 1987, which was an agreement to phase out the production and use of ozone-depleting substances. And what have we seen? The ozone layer has improved over these last 30-plus years. And it's while there's still like a hole that emerges uh, periodically over Antarctica, it has gotten a lot better. And this is one of those things. It's like, it's a process. And that's what I do appreciate, like having talked to scientists these last couple of episodes of like, let, let's study, let's get all the data, do the research. And then over time, like we can make policy changes to match what we're seeing as scientists. And that's one of those things where 
that seemed almost like cataclysmic. Like we have a hole in our ozone. Like that, this is this is not good. But we recognize it. We agreed on some policies, and over the course of decades, things have improved. And again, that gives me hope. Where we're on that, hopefully, on a similar path to we recognize there is an issue. We're starting to put in policies to address that issue. And who knows? In 30, 50, 100 years, we can say it's still an issue that we're talking about and dealing with. But it, the worst effects have been mitigated and improved in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Montreal Protocols, that's a, <laughs> it's like a page right out of my, my first, my first day textbook at, at when I was, at, <laughs> when I was at Columbia, because it is something that everyone was pointing to, like, look, we did this before we could do this again. Yeah. And then, you know, a lot of people would say, well, that was kind of a specific issue we had with these like one refrigerants that we then had a readily available replacement for and so it was kind of easy to just phase it out but i think that speaks to both like the solutions exist and then also like the how much more complex this problem is than than that one was um but but i think like you said it it all like the framework exists we know how we can do this and and so people should be hopeful and I mean, human, like, and it's like, you know, you kind of were both were saying, like, we only have one planet. And so regardless of whether we're at two degrees or not, there's going to be some level of adaptation that we we have to do. But hopefully that also means that we'll move towards protecting it and protecting it better for the future. So, so perhaps we leave it there. Love ending on a high note. <laughs> All right, buddy. Good talking to you, as always. Till next time. See ya. We stay up all night on Garner Avenue Debating all the issues of the day no agenda, not yet. Talking heads, running around till we forget where it was we began. Some mornings you were away, some morning left your ego bruised. But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's heads. Folks of different minds, because even though it did not share, Pains we share that American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz Need an early morning buzz Learn the hard way But to those who would die upon that hill Quiet truth is better Than rain Somewhere along the line We seem to have forgotten Values sometimes being wrong. Some mornings you away, some morning let your ego bruise. But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. And folks of different minds, because though we didn't share opinions, we share an American ideal. Friends made over arguments. And an early morning bus I need an early morning bus
There's hope behind the bluster Cause the old mainstream may not sell It's full of folks just like you and me When we have trouble seeing The human for the politics It's time to find a better way to disagree Some days you win Some days we'll leave your ego through But oh, I wouldn't give for Hope I used to find it Change the lines and Folks are different mind Because though we did not share Opinions we share That American ideal Friends made over arguments And an early morning buzz oh, What I wouldn't give for The hope I used to find In a case of lines had Folks are different mind Because Though we did not share opinions, we share that American ideal. Friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. I need an early morning buzz.